Well, listen, we've been going through the book of Acts. Uh, if you're joining us today or you haven't been here for a while, we've been in the book of Acts. Today we'll be in chapter 10. We talked about the conversion of Saul last week, and we talked about how hard it was for the church to accept the change in him and welcome him into the church family. Remember that? It can be difficult sometimes to trust the change in another person. And today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at Peter and see how God was using a change in him. And he had to receive that change, that perspective shift, because he was the one that had the keys to open the door to this ministry to the Gentiles. And if he had... If he had not allowed himself to change, we may not be talking about it at all today. I have three daughters, three girls, and they have this conversation they love to have about me and my wife. They like to, to tell us who our favorites are. They all have an opinion. The funny part is, whenever my youngest says it, she's never the favorite, right? Well, you know, dad's favorite is, Emma, mom's favorite is Allie. Or if the middle child, Emma, says that nobody, she's nobody's favorite, and I like the youngest, my wife likes the oldest, and somehow she's left out. Right? We did this too. Oh, I know who your favorite is. Right? Or when they're real little, am I your favorite? And here's the thing. It's silly to think that I have favorites, right? My oldest daughter is a tremendous woman. I love her with my whole heart, and I would take a bullet for her at any minute of the day. My middle daughter, for different reasons, is also a tremendous woman, and I would do the same. My love for her is no different than my love for the oldest, right? My youngest, the, the exact same. She's a young woman. She's not allowed to be a woman yet. I'm holding on as long as I can. See, because for one of them to be a favorite, I would have to attribute more value to one than the other. I would have to take value away from one of my other daughters and elevate one above the others. That's what it means to have favorites, right? To be partial to one means that one has more worth and value than another one. I would be the worst father on the earth if I looked at my kids and line up, okay, everybody line up for dinner. You get a scoop. You get a scoop. You get three scoops. It, doesn't, it would be silly for, for you to look at me and go, yeah, Johnny, you should play favorites with your kids. And yet, we live in a world where everybody wants us to play favorites. Isn't it? Everybody wants you to play favorites. Everybody's calling for you to attribute greater value to this group or that group or this person or that person. We live in a world that is constantly asking us to play favorites. It's why advertising exists. It's why marketing is, is doing very well, right? It's why politics is a thing. And it's why our world is in complete disarray. Now listen, if you're sitting here today and when you walk around and you wake up and you look at every person on the earth that you come in contact with, everybody, if you are able to see people as they are, the way God intended, believer, unbeliever, right? Your group or the other group, homeless or well-fed, right? 
CEO or the bottom of the rung, African-American or white or Chinese or Cambodian, Haitian, South African, Scandinavian. If you can see everybody and in your heart of hearts show no partiality, today you could probably just take a nap. And that's okay. That would be the goal. But as we're going to find out in the, same, in the day of the scriptures, and in our day there is something that happens because of the sin in the world. And here's the thing. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I'm a sinner. Since I was born, I've been a sinner and I have struggled to do things the way God wants me to do. So please don't take this as a jab. If you feel a slight tinge or you feel a little uncomfortable, it is not on purpose. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm gonna teach you what it says and I'm gonna do my best to make it understandable for today and then I'm gonna challenge all of us, starting with myself, to live in a way that honors God above all things and maybe causes us to change a little. Is that fair? And I'm just going to ask a couple of questions just to make sure we all can take an inward assessment. Again, if you don't struggle with any of these things we're talking about, you can hit pause. Don't watch the games. Those will be on you for later. Just pause maybe and get a refresher. Last time you walked by, most likely drove by somebody who was homeless, filthy, dirty, asking for the change again. In your heart, do you ascribe yourself just a little more worth and value than that person? If you're driving to dinner and you have to drive down Richmond Avenue and you see a young woman, what's your initial ascription of value and worth to her? Now again, I'm not assuming anything. I'm just asking questions. Right? When you see a person who is not as well off as you, do you look to the sin that caused him to get there? I wonder what happened to them. I wonder what terrible decisions they made. Or are you able to see them the way that God does? Again, just questions. Status, class, economic differences can cause us to attribute value to others or devalue others based on where they are. And I'm just gonna come out right and say it, that's sin. That's sin. The class problems around the world, the divide between people, slavery, racism, when you look at a woman as a man and think they are less valuable than you, that is a sin. When you are a woman and you see man as less valuable than you, that is a sin. Because what you're doing is you're taking their intrinsic value that God gave them at creation and you're trying to strip it away. And then what ends up happening is when we devalue people or add more value, we behave with them in a certain way that shows partiality or favoritism. We can do that. Now, I'm not saying that any of you do that. I'm just saying that, hey, maybe people that you know, and it's okay if you're not this person. 
I hope that none of you are these people. I hope that I'm not this person. But we know, we know, we know that we live in a sinful, broken world and this is part of life sometimes. Now that said, we'll get into a real easy, comfortable chapter of the scriptures. And because, let me be very clear, this is not a uh, cultural commentary today. This is about salvation. The most important thing on this earth is everybody available for salvation. Have you ever looked at somebody and like, oh, no way God would love that person. Right, and a lot of times we put a scale. Mother Teresa's on one side, right? Servant of servants, gave her a whole life for other people, and you have Hitler and the terrible atrocities that he did. And then everywhere else, somewhere in the middle, everybody falls, right? And we kind of put ourselves a little closer to one than the other. You know the problem is? Mother Teresa and Hitler in the same boat. Same boat. Let's see what it says. See if we can pull out a few things from this chapter in the book of Acts. After Saul and the Damascus and Jerusalem and the church started going with them, Peter shows back up on the scene and he heals somebody and he raises somebody to dead through the power of God's spirit. So he's in Joppa and where we find Peter when we begin this chapter is in Joppa and he's at a house of a man named Simon. He's a tanner, right? He tans hides. At Caesarea, verse one, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment, right? He's a soldier. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Now, one day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, I don't know what your prayer life is like, but all these people having these conversations with God, I don't know what you would do. Sometimes when you pray, does it sound more like your voice? Right? You're like, Lord, I need an answer. And it's like you telling yourself what to do. You ever have that happen? All the teenagers are like, man, you too? We thought we were weird. No, it happens to everybody. It's okay. But God says, Cornelius, right? And he stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? The angel says, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a Memorial offering before God. God's paying attention, Cornelius. God knows how good you are. He knows your religious activity. He knows that you fear him. He knows that you're trying to lead your family. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel woke, or excuse me, when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. And he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Cornelius, the first thing we need to understand is Cornelius was a devout, God-fearing man, but he was not a saved man. He was a good man, but he was not a saved man. And we can be religious, we can be good, we can be generous even, this word, my scripture says devout, and yet something was missing. And this is scareless. We live in the South. This is not just the Bible belt, but what is it? Somebody said the belt buckle, right? We're in the belt buckle of the Bible belt. And religious activity 
is widespread and far, and there are a lot of good people. And a lot of times we attribute goodness to salvation. And what we'll find is that goodness is not the standard that is needed for salvation. Being a good person, right? Because then you have to wrestle with the scripture that says that God looked down on earth to find if anybody was good, and it says that there was no one, not even one, which means that we are in the same boat. So let's see what happens. So Cornelius has this vision. God says, hey, go do this because I'm paying attention to your life. Even though you're not a Jew, even though you're not the top of the heap, even though you're not supposed to get the promise, I see you, Cornelius. Let's see what happens. Verse nine, about noon the following day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Now what you need to know is the tops of the houses, they were hot, they were, the inside was not well ventilated. They didn't have central air and heat, right? They didn't have fans going in there. That was not part of their thing. It was hot and stuffy, so they went up on the roof to pray. They dried out vegetables and they used it for a prayer space. This is where Peter was praying. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and the birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Now what you need to look at is Leviticus 11. You can make a little note and you can go look back at that before. That's why this is significant. Because the Jews, according to the law, they had certain food that was clean, right? And certain food that was unclean, right? And the pagan nations ate whatever they want, whenever they want, however they wanted. They would sacrifice food to idols, right? And they would eat it anyway. The Jews were saying, no, you can't do that. In fact, you're not even supposed to sit at the same table with somebody who is eating food sacrificed to idols, right? It was very strict standards. So for God to tell Peter to show him these animals that were in his mind unclean, he was really kind of freaking him out a little bit. So get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord. Now, just so you know, this is not a, a lighthearted like, no, come on. He's telling God no. And the voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. So this interaction with God, God's trying to get him to understand. He's setting him up for what's about to happen, right? Peter's view was that the Jews were the most valuable, most worthy people on the earth. And a lot of the Jews looked at Gentiles as dogs. There was a value and worth attributed to them that was less than the Jews. Just, I wanna be very clear about what it was that we're talking about, okay? So when God said, hey, there's this food that's clean and unclean, right? There's food that's okay and not okay. These are my favorites. These are not my favorites. And he said, don't call the things that are unclean, unclean. God's made everything clean. He was setting him up for what was to come. So while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where his house was. They stopped at the gate. They called out, asked if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Because Peter would be a little uneasy probably to go with these Gentiles anywhere, especially with a military man. 
They'd already been persecuted for sharing Jesus, right? So these very strange things are happening and these men, one being a military man, is there to pick him up. Peter went down and said to the men, hey, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? God did not reveal the whole plan, but gave him enough to go. Peter went down, why have you come? The men said in verse 22, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who was respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to this house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men to the house to be his guest. So they said, hey, look, this is what happened with Cornelius and God told him to send for you and you have something to tell him. And what's interesting is that Peter should have known, oh, God said to go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to all the ends of the earth to go share and proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. I know exactly what I'm supposed to say. Because God had already told them in Acts 1-8 that that's what they were supposed to go do. And what's crazy is that Philip was actually already in Caesarea, so the fact that God said Peter is the one is interesting. Peter was the key, right? Just because someone was closer, God had a specific plan for Peter at this time to do his specific work with Cornelius and his whole household. So the next day, Peter started out, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them. He had called together his relatives and his close friends. What's, he was already, he was already being a witness. Even before he was a saved man, Cornelius knew that something was about to go down, and he wanted his household and his friends and his family to be a part of the movement of God. I don't know about you, if you're in prayer and God is like, Johnny, this stuff's about to go down, I'll be on the phone. Hey guys, you can think I'm weird, but let me tell you what's about to happen. You should come check this out, right? So this is what he says. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. Right back in the day, the Romans, there were a lot of demigods. There were a lot of people. So for him to do that was not out of the ordinary. It was simply inappropriate for a follower of Jesus to accept somebody looking at him as more than he really was. Right? They happened to Apollos and Paul later. You'll see the same thing happen. He was deflecting. He was saying, no, no, no. Don't do that. Pastors all over the world, people, we try to put people up. We elevate people all the time, right? And if a pastor accepts it and takes it in and is like, yes, love me, right? And he doesn't deflect, say, hey, no, 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 no. I'm just a man like you. Don't look at me as any more than, than I am, right? That's when things get a little shady in the church. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said, you're well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask what I'm here for? <laughs> he says, hey, you probably know I'm not supposed to be here. You know the Jews that you know would never be here. I probably wouldn't be here. But God told me already that that viewpoint, that that idea isn't the right way to think. The idea that you as Gentiles are impure and unclean, that me as a Jew is clean and pure, isn't how I'm supposed to see you anymore. I've had a false perspective and God has shifted that so that I can see you as I am supposed to. 
You have also been created by God in his image. You also have purpose on this earth. And as we're about to see, you are also in the um, opportunity for salvation. May I ask why you sent for me? He says this, Cornelius, four days ago I was praying. And he goes on, he lists, he tells them, hey, this is what's going on. I was praying, this is what God told me, and you're here. So um, now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And then Peter began to speak. First thing, first line of his sermon. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. And then what, what Peter does is he tells them the history of how the gospel was to come to the world. But he started by saying, hey, I realize now that God doesn't show favorites even though I have been. That God in his holiness sees things differently than I do. And then he proclaims the gospel to a people he wasn't even supposed to be eating with. Talks about him being witnesses in verse 39. We are witnesses of everything that Jesus did in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem. Talked about how they killed him. In verse 42, it says, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All of the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes, it's not everyone who is good, It is not a certain group of people here and not a group of people here. It says that everyone who believes, everyone. So in your mind, I want you to look around the room. Go ahead, in your mind. Actually, sorry, not in your mind. Now, out in the open, in real time, look around the room. In your mind, let me see. Open your eyes. Everyone. Everyone you drove past today, every person that you hate, every terrible person that's ever lived on the earth, it is not a matter of goodness or religiosity. It is a matter of faith and obedience. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness for sins through his name, Jesus. A prepared people, God had prepared Cornelius and his family. God had prepared Peter, the preacher. How amazing is that, that everybody came ready? Everybody came ready to hear what God had to say because they had been prepared on one side, the preacher was prepared, and when that happens in the same room, salvation, change, growth, maturity happens every time. While Peter was still speaking these words, so Peter's in the middle of the sermon, having a conversation, telling him about the glory of God, talking about Jesus being the savior of the world. The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So he's preaching and the Holy Spirit interrupts the sermon. He's like, whoa. He falls on the people who are hearing Right? And they begin to speak in other languages. Now, this is not a formula for how the Spirit works. It is parallel in this particular moment to Pentecost. Pentecost, the Spirit had come on the Jews, right? They spoke in the languages of those who are the people who are around, and they now came on the Gentiles in the same way to show that God does not show favoritism. It was evidence that it was for everyone. 
Then Peter, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have, so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. They believed, the Spirit fell, and they were baptized. They believed, the Spirit came upon them, and they were baptized. This is the rhythm of the church today. They believed, filled with the Spirit, they were baptized. Over and over, you see it from this point on, that's how it works. They believed, the Spirit came, and they were baptized. Always in that order. That's just how it is. That's just what it says. And the reason that we do it today is for that reason. People had faith, received the Spirit of God, and are baptized to show and testify to who God is in not just their life, but to the whole world. There's so many scriptures. You can look at Ephesians 1, 13, and 14. It helps to understand those things. We're gonna finish with a, a little bit of Romans 2. Because when it comes to salvation, we have to be willing to take it to everyone. That's the whole point here. It is that Peter had a perspective about who was better than another. The Jews were better than the Gentiles. Americans are better than everybody. Some of you almost said amen. This is, listen, I love our country. Don't get me wrong. But when it comes to salvation, we are in as much need as anybody. And these days, maybe more. So all I'm trying to say is, as Peter needed to shift his perspective about who deserves salvation and who gets salvation, we need to remember this thing, okay? It is this, that God does not play favorites. In sin and for salvation, no one is the exception. God does not play favorites. In sin and for salvation, no one is the exception. It means this, that it doesn't matter your background, history, ethnicity, class, status, your economic situation, we all have sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned and are in desperate need of salvation. And you can be the most religious person on the block, but if you don't know Jesus, you still need to be saved. Right? Me as an atheist wasn't further away from God than the person who grew up in church. Salvation is also for everyone. Peter thought salvation was for the Jews. God said, no, those dogs that you call them, no, they get Jesus too, and I'm gonna show you how. I'm gonna show you that it's for everyone, that no one is the exception, either in sin or for salvation. And we can steer clear of favoritism if we remember to see, S-E-E. I just did three because it's easier. The first thing is this, salvation is for all, not some. Withholding the gospel from someone because you don't think they deserve it is sin. Salvation is for all. You have to remember that. You have to own that. You have to accept that as the truth. The first E, everyone holds value to God intrinsically. And there is nothing that can change that. The sin we see in others should not be the person we actually judge them for. Look, had you known me before, I was a lot of people that didn't share Jesus with me because I was a terrible person. It sounds weird, but that's how it, how it works. 
How many people have not been given the gospel because of what they look like, where they come from, or where they fit in the world or don't fit in the world? How many people have we ignored because it was uncomfortable, because we felt like maybe inside that we were better than them? Everyone holds value. Did you know that God created every man and woman in his image? Did you know that? To be in relationship with him? And since the first man to now, we've all messed it up. So how is it that somehow we think that not everybody holds value? God doesn't play favorites and neither should we. This last E is to evaluate your own heart. If God loved you anyway, and he loved me anyway, and he offered me the kindness of salvation even though I was flawed and sinful, Why would I look, see, or withhold love, care, kindness, and salvation from any other person on the earth? We have to understand salvation is for all, not some, that everyone holds value to God intrinsically. Because the truth is, you can't take away their value. If you are overweight and people devalue you because you are overweight, it doesn't mean that you are not valuable to God. He saw you at the beginning in your mother's womb before all the mess happened. If you are not white or not American and you have been devalued in any way, it doesn't mean that you are not valuable. If you are poor and you have been devalued because you don't have enough money to live in Cyprus, Texas, it doesn't mean that you are not valuable. No one, if you are a woman and you have been devalued, it doesn't mean that you hold no value. And if you are a man who was beat down by your father or by some other person on the earth and you feel worthless, it doesn't mean that you are. And salvation, the same Jesus that fixes all of those things and redeems all of those things is available to every single person on the planet that has ever lived and will live until he comes back. And it is our job as the church to align ourselves with that God who made everybody, who sees everybody and offers salvation to everybody and to give it to every single person forever, every day until we die. That homeless man, the Gentile, the Jew, the slave, the free. This is not a cultural commentary. This is a biblical commentary about us as people living in a sinful world, needing to realign ourselves. Now, again, if you don't struggle with this, praise God. Disciple everybody, please. Seriously, I'm not joking. I won't assume that everybody fits in that category. We all do fit in the sin category, though. What are we gonna do today when we leave? Will we know that salvation is for everybody? That everyone has value? And will we evaluate our own heart to make sure that we are always adjusting to Jesus, not trying to get him to adjust to us? Had Peter not done that, the gospel may not have gone to the Gentiles, or at least the story would be different. 
I can't wait to see how God uses this church. I want every Sunday to get interrupted by the Spirit of God. I want every Sunday to be, us to be interrupted. I don't want to finish the sermon. I want the Spirit to fall in such a way that people say, I need that Jesus. If you're in the room and you don't know Jesus, I just want to lay this out for you. However you came in, shameful, hurt, guilty, angry, separated, divided, the God who made you realized that the brokenness that we create by our sin, that separation was not good enough for him and he wants to be with you again. But it'll never work by your religion, by your work, by your generosity. It only comes through Jesus Christ, his son, who he sent into the world to become sin for us and that everybody who believes that his death, burial, and resurrection offers them salvation and life has that forgiveness and enters into a relationship. We get the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us to be with him forever. And if you're like, I've been looking around for a long time, not sure where I can find actual love and worth and value, it is found in Jesus Christ to bring you to the God who made you, who loves you, who has hope and a purpose for you and has future for you in heaven. This is why people got baptized today, to show that. We're gonna end our service like we do by prayer, giving, and singing together. So there was a worship team comes up and as we invite our prayer partners to come forward, I'm gonna ask you this. If you need to pray for someone, you need to pray for yourself or you wanna receive Jesus, this is exactly the right time. If you wanna give as our, as our act of worship, right, our giving, our tithe is worship also. We're not passing anything. You can do that online. There's a box outside. I don't want you to miss that opportunity. But as we sing, we're gonna stand together. I pray that God would stir your heart to respond out of love and gratitude to him. And this would be an opportunity for us to go out, sent out on fire. Father, would you please be pleased with us as we offer this worship to you in prayer and giving and singing. That's it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.